Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And we've got another exciting joint pick, because both hosts of the Fantastic Killer Bees podcast are here. Please welcome Tori, and welcome back, Garrett. Hey, thanks, George. Thanks for having us. Yes, we're so excited. Yes, absolutely. I assume people can figure out which voice goes with which name now. (laughs) (laughs) It seems probable, uh, although feel free to introduce yourself. <laughs> oh, I'm Garrett. I am Tori. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so, Tori, we heard a little bit about Garrett's history with horror on his Mandy episode, mm-hmm. but I think that this is a perfect opportunity because usually we have to kind of skim through this part when we have a joint pick. But since we've already got Garrett's past, let's talk a little bit about your introduction to the genre, how it became a big enough part of your life to host a podcast that you know, goes into it regularly, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I was terrified of most horror things for most of my life and, like, actively, like, avoided (laughs) most horror. And it wasn't until, like, my, my early 20s that I really got into it. And, like, the two things that really got me into horror were The Thing and Reanimator, which, like, very different body horror kind of movies. But then I was like, oh, these can be like really fun and really interesting. And since then, I hosted a podcast with some friends and it was more of a general movie podcast, but every pick I had was like a new horror pick. And like I spent, <laughs> you know, most of my time like in Philly being young and single, just picking random like things on Amazon to watch and catch up on like horror movies. So it like <laughs> just became an obsession like in my, my mid to late 20s. It's weird because there's so much stuff I really love that I only discovered within the past couple of years, but now it's like my favorite genre and I I try to write (laughs) about it and uh, talk about it as much as possible. I think it's really funny how uh, people who come to it late, myself included, I also didn't get into Mm. it until I was in my early 20s. And Mm. I think that it's funny how we all kind of are like, oh, we got to really love it to like bring like everything we missed all those years. (laughs) We have to catch up on it. So we really throw ourselves in. Yeah, and now in this house, if I suggest we watch anything that's not a horror movie, I get like a side eye of like, why are we going to waste our time on that? I know, like um, one of my, you know, bucket list things in life is to watch every 80s horror movie. And I'm like, well, this is another movie that isn't that. So why bother? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. It's funny, too, because, you know. That's a, that's a great goal because it's achievable. You know, you, they're not making mm. any more 80s horror movies because the 80s <laughs> yeah. are done. <laughs> There's a cap on that. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, it ends. Yes. Do you have a preferred subgenre? I mean, obviously, you're clearly a fan of 80s horror, but is there a specific, like, paranormal or slashers or whatever that really jumps out to you where you're like, oh, I like this more more times than not. I give this the benefit of the doubt kind of thing. I mean, I guess slashers is probably one of my favorites. I, I pretty much love every like slasher that we see. I mean, that's um, definitely my favorite. So I feel yeah. like we gravitate uh, towards that. Yeah. But I mean, it, it it was a little bit into like other genres, but like a, a lot of my focus and like my writing on uh, movie John and when I was on Cinema Seventy Six is a lot of like feminist horror kind of takes yeah. and and stuff. And for like a few months now, I've been working on like a, a rape revenge piece as wow. well. So I I really love revenge yeah. uh, specifically. I think that is also one of my favorite like subgenres. Yeah. Slashers are so fascinating to me and probably my favorite subgenre as well. You know, it seems like there must be something in the air here in Philly because I uh, I think that with paranormal and, and stuff like that, there's a lot of waiting around if it's not good. 
But mm. with a slasher movie, yeah. every so often there's gonna be a slashing. It's right there in the name. <laughs> I also feel like, and maybe it's just because I'm in the bag for slashers, but you know they're populated by usually pretty entertaining characters. Mm. Whether you like them or hate them or think the movie is good or bad, I'm usually pretty in the bag for like, oh, these <laughs> dumb teenagers. I just love watching the like the dummies they get to like be the yeah. victims. I always think it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting that the movie we're talking about today. Uh, some people claim that it, in fact, invented the slasher subgenre, um, or the the, the progenitor. Excuse me, the progenitor of this movie. Yes, we're, yes, yes. We're talking about Psycho Two, yeah. the movie I never even expected to be tolerable, much less the best <laughs> horror movie mm-hmm. ever made. Yes. And I watched it for the first time just under a year ago, and it's really shocking to me how good this movie is with the bar set so high. I mean, I, it was funny because I talk about psycho all the time because not only do I just love it, but it's also had an immense amount of influence on horror movies over the years. And I, I'm just the same thing with Halloween where I, I think it's so funny that the sequel got picked before the original here. And I, I just love that. I think it's so great that we get to dive into something that's not talked about as much because everyone talks about Halloween and everyone talks about Psycho, but who else is out here giving Psycho 2 the credit it deserves? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I do feel like most people know there's a Halloween 2, right? Like, most people know mm. that there are sequels to... Like, I didn't even know there were sequels <laughs> to Psycho yeah. until, like, a couple of years ago. I, like, I had never heard anyone talk about them. They just... Ne- even in horror circles as I was getting into them... No one talks about these movies. This was like a huge discovery for me when I watched this movie because, as you suggest, it's like you just anticipate that a sequel to Psycho, <laughs> especially, what is it, like 25 years later? Yeah. Uh, 22, is, I think. Pretty close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It's going to be dog shit, <laughs> you know? Uh, but then, like, the movie is, seems to be fully aware that you think that seems to even know what you think a Psycho sequel is going to be and spend some time masquerading as that movie yeah. so that it can then pull the rug out from under you just like the original. It's like, it is such a great movie. Yes, so good. I'm curious how you both came to it. Like you said, no one talks about it. So what was the thing that finally gave you the kick in the pants to check it out? Well, I did on my other podcast, I like to movie movie, my co-host Dan I think maybe had seen the whole series or at least knew about like must have known about them suggested we do them on our show and I was like oh sure I don't you know whatever great and then you know ended up discovering that I like I like all of these (laughs) movies actually like they they're not all as good as this movie but I do like all of them and then uh, I don't know I liked them so much I bought a blu-ray set that you can get for like 15 bucks you can get like all four of the originals in like a little you know blu-ray collection and uh, so I introduced uh, Tori to them, I don't know, this year? Last year? Quarantine? Yeah, quarantine. yeah. I think we started watching them in quarantine. So whenever blur. quarantine was sure. and however long that lasted. <laughs> but when yeah. we when we first started dating a couple of years ago, uh, Garrett had like a really bad cold and we were just kind of, we hadn't been able to meet. So we just started listening to each other's podcasts as our way of like getting to know each wow. other. Yeah. And you were doing the Psycho movies oh, we around the time that we like had first yeah. started dating. And so I was like listening to this being like, I did not know these movies existed. And then was like, I love Psycho and I love Anthony Perkins, who is in all of Mm -hmm. them. So clearly I have to watch these. And 
Uh, yeah, I mean, this maybe is like one of the best franchises, like with all the movies being really great. So for sure, one yeah. of my favorites. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I actually still have to check out three and four myself, mm. but I friend of the pod, Dustin, he loves three. It's I mean, very look, fun. Highly recommend. Anthony Perkins directed that right. movie, and Anthony Perkins is a grade A weirdo <laughs> with an interesting sense of humor. And it very much comes through in his Psycho movie. Also, you get to see Jeff Fahey's neon purple balls in that movie. And I refuse to explain that any further. <laughs> you just got to check it out, folks. Yeah. Exactly. And also, I agree that, that I've seen that set. I almost pulled the trigger on it many times myself. And yeah. I think that if you don't already have a copy of Psycho, it's worth yeah. it just for that. And then you get this and mm-hmm. also the other two in there. What more could you possibly ask for? Yep. 100%. So Psycho 2 was released in 1983, 23 years after the 1960 release. And it was set in that time frame as well. Although, interestingly, it is unrelated to Psycho author Robert Block's Psycho 2 book, despite that being the same gap from 1959's publishing date of Psycho to 1982, <laughs> uh, which that's a weird coincidence. <laughs> That is interesting. Which I think I bought you that. We I, haven't, we, yeah. We own uh, Psycho 2 by Robert Block, but I've not yeah. read that book yet. Very different based on uh, what I was reading. <laughs> so you'll get a whole new story. There you go. Yeah. The book sold well, but it had mediocre reviews and especially the negative comparisons that it got to Red Dragon, which had been published the year before. Hmm. And in addition to that, the story was pretty explicitly anti-Hollywood, in addition to Hmm. instances of rape and necrophilia. And so Universal was like, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you don't say. They didn't want to touch that? They didn't want to touch that. They didn't even invite Block to the screenings of Psycho 2. That's how how not 10-foot pole they were touching him with. Interesting. But in the commentary for Psycho 2, Tom Holland, who went on to write this as his third script uh, before ultimately breaking into the directing game as well with Child's Play and Fright Night, Mm -hmm. called the book, quote, the least commercial or even filmable sequel to Psycho Imaginable as a giant (laughs) fuck you. (laughs) That's very funny. Yeah, I, I will say, though, that one thing, you know, I don't want to spoil anything for you since you haven't read the book, but yeah. it does something similar to Psycho in terms of uh, taking away a central character relatively early on, although it's not even revealed that that's happening until later. So okay. so there's some, some interesting Psycho parallels there. It does still sound like an interesting book to me, so I might check it out myself, but uh, not that related to the movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading it. I mean, I, I think that the uh, the script for this movie is great. And it is interesting that, you know, he goes on to make some other great, interesting horror movies. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you can, I, I don't know, if you, you can chart a nice trajectory, I think, from this movie into those movies. You know what I mean? Well, there's such a good general team with this movie, too, yeah. of 80s horror awesome folks. Like oh, yeah. Dean Cundy Come on. is yeah. also Cundy the, the DP. <laughs> yeah. Right. I right. was like, we were, I like always forget. Again, and when we were watching it this time again, I was like, yes, there are so many awesome people involved in this. Yeah. This is perfect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, typical of Cundy, it's a great looking movie. Oh, too. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really one thing I love is that a lot of times when cinematographers and directors of photography use Dutch angles, they tend to go a little crazy with it. And, and every uh-huh. <laughs> every couple minutes, they're like, bam, Dutch angle. Yeah. And in this movie, it's used very sparingly. 
And I think yeah. that it really kind of calls back to the original purpose of really kind of throwing you off kilter and making you feel the unbalance that the character is feeling as well. And that only comes yeah. with having that Cundy flair, baby. <laughs> That's right. Very yeah. true. <laughs> that is, I mean, I, I know that we'll get into like the plot of the movie as, uh, as we go through here, George, but that is what I kind of like about this movie so much. I think you as well, Tori, is that the kind of rug pull of this movie is that Norman becomes the hero of, of the story. Really? It, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's more about his actual innocence in this and, yeah. and him being his own worst enemy. And these people kind of trying to take advantage of him and reignite this thing in him. It's, it, it's a very interesting, it's not what you would expect for a sequel to psycho. Yes. And that, that's, what's so interesting and fun about it, but it also preys on what we know about Norman the whole time. Right? Exactly. The same fears that he has are the fears that we have. Because we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, just like he is. Yeah. 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 And you want to root for Norman. Like, he's a cutie pie. I love Norman. He's adorable. Well, I mean, he's probably my favorite slasher, actually, because he really, I just, I love Norman. I really love (laughs) Norman. Yeah. I I think, uh, you know, this is the best horror movie ever made, but specifically, Anthony Perkins' performance in the original Psycho, I think, is the best horror performance of all time. Oh, yeah. And how about that, too? I mean, the other thing that is so impressive about this movie is 22 years later, he comes back and, like, this may be, like, the best return to a classic character by an actor I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Slides right in. He, like, slips right back into this character down to that he has a stutter, but only when he's like under extreme stress mm-hmm. down to like all of these little details, he like brings back and mm-hmm. feels so natural. You know, he's like, he's naturally re- returns to this character of Norman. It's a, it's a really incredible performance. I mean, you're immediately charmed by him again, which you are when you first see psycho. Right. And then this one is even harder because you know, all of the things yes. that he has done. And yeah. I'm still immediately like, yes, I just want the best for him. I hope he's rehabilitated. Yes. Yeah. I hope things go well. Yes. Yeah, so when yeah. he does his little nervous chuckle, when he's like, I don't, kill people anymore <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh man when he's like he's like struggling to pick up a fucking knife to cut a sandwich for the pretty girl in his oh, kitchen it's, yeah. it's, it's gonna get better norman yeah but yeah so like i said universal hired tom holland to write and they reached out to richard franklin to direct and franklin had been a huge hitchcock fan since he himself saw the original psycho in theaters as a 12 year old and <laughs> yeah he's an og hitchcock head <laughs> <laughs> and while studying film at USC alongside George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, and John Carpenter, what a class. Wow. Yeah. He had actually become good friends and even a student of Hitch himself after trying to get a screening at the School of Rope, uh, which led to a phone call and lecture invite for the man himself. I Aww. thought you said the School of Rope <laughs> as if he was like going to school to be like a professional dominatrix or something. I'm sure it's out there. <laughs> yeah. But he moved back to Australia to work for a bit, trying to build up a name for himself, including a movie heavily based on Rear Window called Road Games. Oh. Yeah, it's mm. it's like, uh, what if Rear Window was in a car? Wouldn't that be something? Uh, we haven't seen that, but I think we might have literally just bought it. Wow. Isn't that one of the ones we just ordered? Maybe. I think so. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that movie, along with just like a passion for Hitchcock's work, got him this job. That's interesting. Because he, you know, this movie is full of references to Hitchcock's original movie, mm-hmm. but in like really kind of like crafty, interesting ways and has some really, I think, like impressive 
cinematography that makes it's interesting to me that we've done this before you can watch this movie back to back with psycho and and despite the fact that you're watching you know a movie in color that is clearly like a much more modern movie i think they sit nicely very next to each other uh tonally and and part of that is franklin's i think very careful attention to the direction yeah i think that first of all i think that a lot of the references to the original are handled very deftly they don't just feel like easter eggs for you to spot they feel like they are important to the plot in some fashion or another which mm-hmm. is, I think, very important. And then there, and then they also are like, here's some actual Easter eggs, like the Hitchcock shadow <laughs> on the wall. Yes. <laughs> well, and I like the way they they really do like prey on what you know and remember about the first movie. Like anytime somebody is on that goddamn staircase, you're like, oh, they're fucking going down. That person <laughs> is about to take a fucking spill. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And like you say, a lot of that comes to how it looks, which Dean Cundy was brought on as a cinematographer. Amazing, amazing cinematographer. Mm -hmm. Perhaps most known for The Thing, which, as you said, Mm -hmm. is an all-timer and a lot of people's sort of introduction into what horror can really be. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with Dean Cundy's work. I, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. John Carpenter is who he is, but Dean Cundy really brings a lot to every movie that he works on. Uh, yeah. The best John Carpenter movies are the ones that Dean Cundy shot. Exactly. Absolutely. Generally. Yeah. yeah. And they also got Jerry Goldsmith as the composer. Oh yeah. Another favorite of ours. He's great. And it's really fascinating to me that the studio was like, you can use the Bernard Herman score from the original and in an effort to help this movie build its own identity, they decline. I, I think that that's so confident and so that is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, like, wh- I mean, that is such an iconic score. And so maybe on one hand, you go, like, we don't want to be, like, in the shadow of that or whatever. But I don't know. That feels like that's a no-brainer. Like, fucking use that score, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's like, the animator it's so came good. in and said, we're going to do it instead. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, so it does, it feels like you're literally cutting yourself off at the knees. Like, you've already got one key component down, good, ready to go, locked, you know? But they're like, no, we got this. uh, We don't need it. We're going to write a whole other one. Hold my beer. Yeah. (laughs) And luckily, you know, we mentioned that they got Tony Perkins back in the role of Mm. Norman Bates, but what an incredible boon that is. And so incredible that they were able to get him back in, you know? There were rumors that if he'd said no, Christopher Walken would have been the replacement. (laughs) And then it would have been a direct-to-TV sequel as well. And this was around the time that he was doing Stephen King's The Dead Zone for people who are trying to imagine what that looks like. And, I mean, look, I like walking, but Tony Perks don't miss. And I am glad (laughs) that they felt confident enough in the movie to actually release it legit because the movie is so good. And it would just be another thing that people could use to dismiss this movie if they were like, Mm -hmm. oh, it was direct-to-TV, and oh, it's 22 years later, and all that jazz. So many things stacked up correctly for this movie to to (laughs) be in the place that it is. And it just feels like such a, a balancing act of everything that it's so impressive. Yeah. And while I was researching, I found an absolutely bonkers article from People Magazine in 1983, where they're talking about why is Anthony Perkins so good as Norman Bates? And the answer was, because of insane childhood trauma, of course. And (laughs) I was reading this article, and to sum it up, basically, 
his father was a famous stage actor, and so he was gone a lot. And Anthony was like, wow, I love him, but also when he's here, I'm jealous because I'm used to just being mom and me. And so when uh, Daddy Perkins died, Tony, who was five, felt incredibly guilty. And then you compound this with the fact that Mrs. Perkins wound up coming right up to the line of molestation over the rest of his childhood. And Tony became terrified of women for real, Mm. despite plenty of interest from them. So he wound up having several gay relationships, claims to have found it unsatisfying. And after, quote unquote, encouragement from a psychotherapist, which I assume was some kind of conversion therapy or something. Yeah. Mm. finally had sex with a woman at 39 before shortly thereafter meeting his wife-to-be and then ultimately dying of AIDS at 60. And his wife wasn't a carrier, so there's some discussion of if he was bi or actually gay and still grappling with his sexual identity still. And then that would have been enough to just be like, wow, that's crazy that Anthony Perkins had such a a harried life. But then his wife also died in one of the hijacked planes of 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. We, just we were just talking that about that. It's I was insane. Like, Jesus Christ. And then you think about his kids too, who are also like uh, I know one of his. I mean, one of his kids is a director, and then the other is right. also in the music industry and stuff. And like thinking about how hard that was on them. Oh I, my god! It, yeah. yeah, blew me away. That is so traumatic in so yeah. many different ways. That I, I couldn't believe that when I heard both. You know, all of those things stacked up one after the other after yeah. the other is like unbelievable. I just bought a biography on Perkins because we want to do him for the podcast, but I legitimately think he is such an interesting person that I need to do the most research I've ever done for our podcast on him. (laughs) But I, yeah, it's called like Split Image and it it kind of talks a lot about like how he kind of is perfect for the role of Norman because he just understands so much of what it would be like to be Norman. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that it that that happened to him, but it really is incredible that he is able to kind of put that into his art in in such an interesting way. And hopefully it was Mm -hmm. cathartic for him. There was some talk about getting Jamie Lee Curtis to play the role of Mary, which, of course, would have been very appropriate, Mm -hmm. as she's the daughter of the original Marion, Janet Lee. Unfortunately, between a scheduling conflict and wanting to sort of move away from horror, having just gotten trading places, uh, it wasn't meant to be. Although I do like uh, Meg Tilly a lot in this. I do, too. Oh, yeah. Meg is great. I I think that... You know, it's it's funny that there's all these little connections because, of course, Jen Tilly is such an integral part of Child's mm-hmm. Play, which Tom yeah. Holland wrote the original of and everything. Yeah. So yeah. just all these little connections all over. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, Meg is great in this. They brought back Vera Miles to play Lila Loomis, although Sam Loomis was written out because John Gavin was serving as the ambassador to Mexico. <laughs> Wait, I what? feel like every... Every scrap of information I find out about these actors just blows my mind. Like Meg Tilly didn't watch any TV growing up and she had never seen Psycho even after being cast in this. (laughs) I wonder if that like, does that help a performance, right? Is that like, is that how she like fits so well into this movie? Well, I also read too a little bit that I guess she had a bad time on set in on this. Uh, Yeah, she did not get along with either Anthony Perkins or the director. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is also insane because I think that uh, she and Perkins do have like a fair amount of chemistry but also there's so much tension in that relationship in the movie and maybe that is part of the reason yeah yeah it's her her relationship to Anthony Perkins character is this really interesting kind of mix of sympathy and fear Mm -hmm. and kind of a strained relationship might actually add something to that in a way where it's like oh like he isn't 
he's he's a nice guy but why like why isn't that happening for me because um, it seems like a lot of people have very nice things to say about anthony perkins and so it is quite kind of a surprise to hear that that they didn't get along again it it is it's just like wow that sucks at least it went into the art in some way like it's not just (laughs) sitting there yes getting bottled up but yeah everyone in it is great it was made on the Universal set for $5 million over the course of a month. They did actually still have the Bates House set and several props, but they did have to rebuild the motel itself. Okay. And the town of Fairvale is actually the courthouse square that would go on to become famous for being the town in Gremlins and Back to the Future just a few Aww. years later. Sure, yep, yeah. <laughs> That's like their famous kind of like, you know, small town lot that is pops up in tons <laughs> of movies. That's right. It's all the same place. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, even the diner that's featured in this movie Mm. is something that comes up in, like, one line of dialogue in the original movie. Like, all of the details of this movie are very nicely threaded from the original movie into this movie, which I kind of like because they feel incidental, but they are nice and and kind Mm -hmm. of connected. Yeah. They really grounds it in the first movie, which I think, to your point earlier about how watching them back to back does feel very natural. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the kind of thing that helps that out a lot. Yeah. As far as reception, it was mixed with people reacting differently to the era appropriate updates, but mostly fairly dismissive. Some notable reviews were Richard Canby, who said it felt like watching precocious film students play with artifacts found in the Hitchcock mausoleum. (laughs) And Ebert said that it was better than the average slasher, but too heavy on plot. So I don't know what this freaking guy wants, because he always (laughs) complains about people being too disposable, and he complains, and then there's a bunch of plot, and he complains, and I'm beginning to think this guy just doesn't like horror very much. (laughs) I do do think that's one of his least liked genres, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. It wouldn't be an episode of Best Little Horror House without checking in with our favorite villain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Old Roger, yeah. Boy, yeah, I mean, I guess I've seen this movie now like three or four times. And it always feels maybe like a little bit long to me when I rewatch it. So I think maybe I can hear his like, it's maybe a little too plotty, but not really because that first time you watch it, it really pulls off its magic trick the same way the first yeah. movie does. Yeah. And that's why it's so good, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I can still remember that first experience with it every time I watch it. So I, I don't even know if I agree with that criticism that I just said. Yeah. I mean, like the, the, <laughs> The original Psycho also got like somewhat mixed, uh, yeah. you know, reviews as well. So certainly so. Some people just it takes them a while to appreciate true art <laughs> you know? to catch up with us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think that you're right, Garrett, because the ending of this movie gets so twisty yeah. and so so all over the place. But I remember that first time watching it, being like, "Oh, I get it," and then another twist would happen and be like. Holy shit, I didn't <laughs> get <Yeah>. it. <laughs> I mean, by the time, I, I guess, do we? Can, sh- can I spoil it now or should we wait till we yeah, get yeah, there? Yeah. I, you can go. I ahead. mean, by the time he's bashing his new mom over the head with a shovel, I, I just was like, I remember the first time, like, literally, like, getting off of my couch, be like, yeah, Norman, like, <laughs> just, like, just so, like, man, oh my God, yeah, well, what a what, movie. What I like about this movie, too, is, like, we've, this is, like, maybe my third time watching it, yeah. and I always, like, kind of forget some of what's going on because it is so twisty and turny, but that makes it kind of fun because yeah. it feels, like, a little bit new to me every time I watch it, too, because I'm always yeah. like, wait a second, who killed who? Did, yeah, Norm- right. did Norman kill anyone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, 
how right. how aware is he of what's going on? Right. Like, there's so much interesting stuff like that that I'm always asking those same questions while I'm watching <laughs> the movie. Yeah, keeps it fresh. Yeah. It's so sad by the time you get to the finale and he's fully convinced that he's gone crazy again. I know. Well, because that's the thing too is like you want to believe he's rehabilitated, and then these women have inserted themselves into his life, making sure he does not get rehabilitated. <laughs> yeah. And you were like, yeah. maybe he had a chance, but now you broke him. It seemed like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's all these little things too, where it's like, maybe if the cutbacks hadn't uh, happened and there was a social worker who could come by more frequently yes. to check yeah. on him, or if, if Lila and, and Mary hadn't inserted themselves into his lives as concretely mm-hmm. or, or any of a million chances, it really feels at the beginning like Norman could have made it. Yes. Which makes the ending of this just so tragic. Yes, yeah, yeah it's really tragic. Well, and so I- Robert Loja, why did you put him back in that house? Come yeah. on, man. <laughs> It does feel like the uh, the justice system made a series of very seemingly obvious missteps. Yeah, uh, in trying as, to get, as they do. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Reagan was in charge. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so to get into the actual movie, it starts with a production card in black and white. As we transition to the famous shower scene, first of all, I like that they start off with it in black and white, even the production card, because mm. it gives you a nice little easy segue. But this shower scene is a perfect recap to communicate a ton of important information for this movie without doing like a huge exposition scene. Mm -hmm. And also it just rules. I'm like, hell yeah. I want to see that scene again. It's so good. Yeah. And then color starts to fill in as we pan over to the house, which I really like as well. And we Mm -hmm. see Anthony Perkins in as he screams, Oh God, mother blood. (laughs) And then bang title card. I just love it. It's so simple. It's so effective, really great stuff. And so when we actually join our characters, it's at a hearing where Norman Bates is being considered for release, much to Lila Loomis's dismay, whose 700 plus signature petition has no effect on the proceedings. <laughs> yeah. What an interesting, I mean, uh, her character arc in this movie is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I always, by the, by the end of it, I always feel kind of bad that that is where that character ended up because, you know, she does seem like just a a caring, nice person in the original movie that just wants to know what happened to her sister. And like, by the end of it, she's, you know, maybe as bad as Norma Bates. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's certainly been embittered over the years uh, by this. And yeah, just to, for people who maybe aren't as intimately familiar with the plot of Psycho, uh, Lila is the sister of Marion Crane, Norman's victim in the shower scene and the widow of Sam Loomis, who is Marion's infidelitous lover and Lila's amateur detective partner. So there's, there's all the connections. I don't know how you figured out how to reduce all of that to the three sentences you just said, but bravo, my friend. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. It wasn't easy, (laughs) but she starts to panic a bit, pleading with everyone to help her. And she says, it's all too obvious that our courts protect the criminals, not the victims. And this, you know, I joked about Reagan being in charge at the beginning, but this really does feel like full Reaganite in the years between one and two. She claims that mental illness is legal hocus pocus. (laughs) Like she's really gone fully uh, just bitter over the Mm -hmm. years, like I said. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting characterization of somebody hardening over the years Mm -hmm. and becoming conservative because of it. We know because we've seen the first movie, the events that kind of led to that hardening and, Mm. you know, it. There is something interesting. 
And it makes sense yeah. to me that she's where she is when we meet her in this movie. It, it would be interesting if there was, like, I'm interested in the movie where Sam was a character, too, to see, like, how it affected mm-hmm. him, if it affected him the same way. Yeah. Did his death, like, potentially, like, somehow trigger some of this for her a little bit more? Yeah, there's just so much, like, interesting background information like that that I, like, wonder. But, like, how did this person end up this way? Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because... Without them ever really talking about it, you can kind of see it. Her and Sam, you know, they bond over this tragedy, mm-hmm. and then they fall in love together, and, and she clings to him really tightly, and then when he finally dies as well, she she just withdraws into herself and becomes mm-hmm. this completely different person, and... and you know, when we see Meg Tilly later being being like, I'm not doing this for you or for dad anymore. I'm not living for dead people. You mm-hmm. know, you can see that, it, it, at least to me, it feels like the father, Sam Loomis, is someone that, that Lila probably throws in her face a lot. Mm. And I, I think that uh, it's it's just, like you said, I, can, I, I think that it makes sense that she's wound up here. And you yes. can kind of see the path that she took. And the fact that they do manage to communicate this without just being uh, so heavy-handed with it, I think is something that's really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Robert Loja is Norman's doctor, Bill Raymond, and <laughs> he's fun in this. I love seeing Robert Loja <laughs> pop up and stuff. The uh, And is very, I mean, he's playing a very Robert Loja character in this movie, it feels like. I mean, <laughs> his shirt's like unbuttoned a little bit throughout the whole thing and stuff, you know? <laughs> Hell Yeah. And he takes Norman back home after Norman's release. And as you say, this is a weird move from them. Robert yeah. Loja is like, oh, we could get you like an apartment or something in the town. And Norman's like, no, don't worry about it, man. It'll be totally fine. Yeah, put me back in the place where all of the things that would trigger my mental illness happened. Yeah, uh, I immediately start having flashbacks of my terrible life with my mother. It's like the, the fucking... It literally immediately. Yes, immediately. it's the yeah. moment he walks into the house, it starts happening. It's yep. like, it's so sad. Robert Loja is still there. He sees yes. it happen. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, it is. He, he, he just lets it happen. You know, Norman thinks he sees someone in the window of the house where his quote-unquote mother used to be. But he does allow his fears to be assuaged by the doctor who insists that nobody has been a tenant in this house for years. Mm. They are nervous, though, about Norman staying there and the memories coming back, especially, as I said, thanks to the social programs being slashed more than the victims leading to the dearth of trained social workers. But Norman says he knows how to handle it now. So who needs anyone checking in on him? Right. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's all set. He's, he's, yeah. He got it all settled. It's all worked out. This is what the movie's doing, right? It's like, this is what you probably expected a sequel to Psycho to be yeah. uh, in in the ways that you would expect it to be dumb too, the ways you would expect it to be clumsy <laughs> mm-hmm. where it's like yeah they're just dumping him back off at his house where everything <laughs> happened yep. he immediately seeing his mom in the window again boy, here we go like you know <laughs> and I think it knows that it knows you're gonna be like oh come on really this is like what we're doing you know yeah it's yeah. setting you up yeah exactly it, it makes you think that you're smarter than the movie so that yes. the movie can be smarter than you exactly yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Uh, Norman wanders the house, which is covered in dust, and he finds all these indicators of his mother, uh, including notes and whatnot, a a new note even, uh, which brings back memories of his poisoning of her. And 
a lot of this scene looks really great. Between the classic Hitchcock dolly out, zoom in to create the feelings of vertigo, and the reflections of himself as a young boy in the polished wood and the metal doorknob, it's all great stuff. That's actually his son, Oz Perkins, now yeah. director of excellent horror films himself. Yeah, we, we saw that in the credits when we were watching it. We were like, oh, okay, that makes sense, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who better to look like a young version of him? Yeah. <laughs> and so that day, he checks into his prearranged job at a diner in town where he's greeted by Emma Spool, an older woman who also works there, and uh, she discusses with him her fandom of forgive and forget. Very Christian, she says. Mm. Right, right, yeah. He also meets Mary Samuels, which is Meg Tilly's character, who's another waiter there. She is very harried as well you know coming into this she's already like late she's she's throwing on her uh, her uniform as she arrives but in order to sort of get this connection going between them right away she breaks a plate at work her fourth in two days or whatever and uh, norman covers for her and you know even her name is is kind of like a less explicit psycho reference where uh, marie samuels is the name that marion crane signs into the bates motel with and so if he had remembered that Maybe oh, he that's interesting. Inter- you know what? Thing. I never even made that connection. I know. I didn't either. Yeah, that's that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah, of sense. She knew. And yeah, I mean, it's like when you think about what's happening in full view of the story, she is like literally like doing things to try and make a connection with Norman in this scene. You know, she's yeah. like right. she's trying to make sure that he invites her back to the the house and the the motel, mm-hmm. which, right. which is oh, I've been thrown out. And, yeah, and it's raining and. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting when you think about some of these scenes in full view of like the what's actually happening in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The duplicity. And and he does. He offers to let her stay at the motel. She appears to be hesitant, but between the rain and the offer of a free, a free place to stay, she does take the offer. When they arrive though, Norman is suspicious of the condition of of the place and the two of them meet the motel's manager while Norman was incarcerated, Warren Toomey. Perhaps related to, and certainly as much of a scumbag as Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well what, a, what a perfect connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the Philly that everyone's coming here for, baby. <laughs> Take a bow, George. I uh, love it. <laughs> but Norman sends Mary to the house instead of the motel, and he fires Toomey for allowing people to, quote, party in the rooms after he finds drugs and, and he, he realizes that people are staying for uh, just hours instead of the entire mm-hmm. evening. Yeah, I mean, are we not um, going to talk about uh, Toomey is played by, uh, what's his name, Dennis Franz? Is that his name? Yeah. Human, human <laughs> sausage, Dennis Franz? <laughs> he's, man, when his outfit later, when he's in the diner and he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt yes. with a bolo tie, I was like, that's a power Dude, move, Dennis. I mean, he is a sleazy ho- motel owner. <laughs> he, like, that is his thing. He is, all he does in this movie is sweat, smoke cigarettes, <laughs> And sound like what I imagine a sausage sounds like when it's frying on a pan. You know what I mean? Like, and calling Norman a psycho. Yeah, constantly. actually calling him a psycho. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, he makes a lot with the small role he's given. Yes, yeah. true. When Norman rejoins Mary in the house, she calls her boyfriend to talk with him. And Norman just kind of putters around. And as you say, they do kind of keep you unsure of how this is going to go or, or like or unsure when the moment is going to happen of of him sort of going back because he finds his mother's tea box that he poisoned her with and Mm. he finds the giant butcher's knife and oh, he's getting nervous. And 
we are like the fact that he is resisting it kind of puts the seed of the idea in your mind of like is this just going to be a straightforward slasher sequel right. or is this going to be something new yeah and they do such a great job of keeping you on tender hooks while using the symbology of the first movie yes. yeah yeah because uh I mean, I guess we'll get there, but we also get to like bathrooms and watching and like all of these things start kind of recurring, but transformed a little bit um, in interesting ways. Absolutely. He also lies to her about having any knives rather than just take it out. (laughs) But she she grabs it and she literally hands him the knife. And to, yeah, she's like, cut point, my sandwich. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you say, when you, when you like have seen the movie and you're kind of like looking at it from a bird's eye view and being like, oh, well, this was her trying to trick him. Like yeah. putting the knife literally in his hands is like as, as explicit as the gaslighting gets. Yeah. Like, oh, she's like, here you yeah. go, do it. Like, and her face is so funny too when she does it because even she's like, this is weird. I'm like, do you yeah. know the situation? I mean, you do know the situation you're in right now, of course. Yeah. But it's like, y- y- this is dangerous. It this is, is super dangerous. Yeah. It is strange to consider Meg Telly's position throughout this yes. movie because it is like, I mean, you know what your end game is, right? Because yeah. if your end game yeah. is what I think your end game is, you handing him a knife means he's going to fucking kill you. Like- yeah, you you are the attractive young woman yeah. in his house. Yeah. This is not going to end well for yeah, you. Yeah, it's like I don't so it's like I I do get I don't know, it's interesting and weird that I guess she has accepted that or yeah. thinks she'll be able to escape his clutches well she has that like throwaway line about being like a psych student or right. something and you're like oh so is this some fun like fucked up like, <laughs> yeah, it's like this game, game for you that yeah. Playing. yeah yeah i also think that there's a little bit of a reflection of norma bates and norman mm. in the relationship that lila has with her especially oh, in terms of how controlling she is and everything you know, at the end, yeah. when things have gotten a little more scattered and, and she's a little more desperate and she says, oh, go up there one more time and put yourself in harm's way. But don't worry. I'll have the cops there. No, like so quick. And like, that's an insane thing to say. Yeah. And for for her to be willing to put her daughter in harm's way to throw her under the bus to try and get this guy who hasn't done anything yeah. put back in a mental institution is just like the cruelest thing I can possibly imagine. Yeah, and and Norman's the one that should be put away for life. It's like, okay. (laughs) Right. It is so unbelievably cruel uh, the deeper you get into like what they're actually doing to Norman. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking because you're like, oh, this guy does not stand a chance. Right, right. Yeah. It is funny though that there is a little bit of like, she does know the position she's in because... When he does get through slicing the Sammy, he makes it through, yeah. and he goes, "Oh, I, you know, I lost my appetite a little bit," and she's like, "Oh, I lost my appetite too. I'm gonna go upstairs." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, slicing the Sammy is the name of my upcoming Scott album. <laughs> Hell yeah! Hell yeah! I'll be first in line. Yeah. And they talk a little bit about his past, and he asks her to stay so that he's not alone in the house. And one of the things she does is insist that he face his fears. Mm. Again, this probably is not with his actual best interests at heart, no. uh, right. forcing him to go into this, this room. But they do go into his mother's room, and there, indeed, is the Hitchcock silhouette cast on the wall, a really slick way of incorporating his trademark cameo. Right, yeah. 
That is kind of interesting. I don't even know if I ever totally noticed that because I don't. I don't always look for that. I know that's like a thing everybody loves the the little Hitchcock, you know, passing by in the background of all of his <laughs> yeah. movies. I feel like when I catch them, I'm like, ooh, there it is. Uh, but I, I'm like never really looking for them, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny, too, because sometimes they're like as in your face as North by Northwest, where right. he's like on screen for like a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's like this, or, you know, a plenty of them uh, where it's just like the silhouette from Hi- Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. <laughs> like instead of actually. I him. think I saw something, um, too, that like they had talked to his daughter about the fact that they were making a sequel, and she was like, oh, he would have loved it. Like he would have. <laughs> love that yeah. you guys are doing this and I was like oh that's like kind of cute that there is like some sort of like stamp of approval from the Hitchcock family oh, yeah. yeah I also one thing I really like especially noticeable in this scene is that there are some really great wide shots instead mm-hmm. of constantly cutting back between the two of them it makes it really effective to see their body language and see how nervous Norman is yes. not only at being back in the house but having an attractive woman there with him and and how nervous Meg is at spending the night with a mur- uh, literally a murderer <laughs> and yes it's yep. the kind of thing where the the body language is as important as the actual language yeah um, I mean he's constantly in a state of like being triggered throughout this movie and you yeah. see it like you definitely see it you hear it with like his stutter it's it's so well done yeah and he I mean he's such a tremendous like physical <laughs> performer too uh, yeah. you know just the the way he kind of like flitches and twit yeah you know he's got like little twitches and things he's great sweating buckets yeah. uh, I know I feel so bad for him I know he gives Dennis Frowns a run for his money <laughs> He sure does. The next day, Mary comes back to work and she says that her friend in town said that she could stay with her and that she'll be leaving, which does disquiet Norman. And this is exacerbated by a drunken Toomey showing up to work and blowing smoke in his face and calling him a psycho and and all this kind of stuff. The the poor lad is just trying to chop up some lettuce. I know. Well, and this is the scene with the uh, the note, right? So yes, we see another note. We saw the first one in the house and he kind of just passes it off and he's like, it said like a I'll be home late. Cook yourself something for dinner. Yeah, you, you, you could imagine maybe that just happened to still be there from, you know, yeah. 30 years prior. I'm, you know, right. I assume that's what he does in his head to kind of like try and write that off. Exactly. But all the while during this scene, there's a note hanging on the little like uh, order. Yeah, it's like a turnstile yeah. that uh, orders <laughs> get hung up on in a restaurant. Yeah. Yes. And this is a much more aggressive note. That says, don't let that little whore in my house again, (laughs) signed from mother instead of M. Much more explicit, both in tone and in being from the mom. Very Norma. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And while this is, like, while we see this, like, hanging there, Toomey is aggressively harassing Mm. Mary, which pisses off Norman even more. This is where one of those Dutch angles gets put in as things escalate, which is, as I said, not only a way to sort of put you off balance, but it's also a nice little nod to the German expressionist influence that Hitchcock himself had uh, in terms of where he got a lot of his inspiration from. Yeah, this is when Toomey starts like... Doesn't he, at some point, Norman picks up a knife and Toomey starts going like, yeah, yeah, psycho, like, use your (laughs) knife, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, because so uh, he thinks that Toomey is the one leaving these notes. And so he's freaking out. In his frenzy to confront Toomey, he splashes hot oil all over his boss. Uh, And you see a bunch of customers like leaving in a a rush. Mm. But he glances at the knife in this cake and this enrages Toomey. And yes, he's yelling, psycho, psycho, use the knife, psycho. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, But Norman does resist. 
and he goes back into the kitchen as Toomey storms out. And I think that this is where the first seeds of doubt get put into Mary's mind as to whether this is actually the right thing to do. Because if this moment didn't push him to at least even threaten the guy, Mm. it really feels like he is working hard to restrain this part of himself. Right, right. And in the aftermath, nobody can find the note. And I love how Norman reacts to this. He's, He's so scared and he's like, don't, don't just humor me. And he realizes how it sounds when he starts to say that there was a note from his dead mother yeah. there. It's just incredible acting. Again, this is where a lot of the body language comes in. I think that Anthony Perkins is incredible in this movie the whole way through. Mm-hmm. But in these little moments of pressure is really where he shines. Well, and this is where he starts to make you feel like you you care about Norman and yeah. Norman's fate. But mm-hmm. but this is where the movie is starting to play its trick of, hey, but you also, you watched the first movie. This is what <laughs> Norman does. Yes. Norman lulls you into a sense of security and then is a murderer, you know? And wait, yeah, wait, exactly. Wait. And so it's like, the, I love the way the movie is preying on, it, it, it really is a movie about rehabilitation, right? And about yeah. what we think mm. about rehabilitation and, and what our own biases might be about rehabilitation yeah. because you spend the whole movie going like, right, but I know what he's capable of. Yeah. You know? I mean, who knows what his like stay was like when he right. was institutionalized or whatever. Probably but, not like, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, maybe he did get some of the tools he needed, sure. but then like, he doesn't even have a chance on the outside. Like, you know, right. you know, it's very similar for I'm sure a lot of people because it's like hard finding employment. It's hard mm-hmm. finding connections with people. Mm-hmm. It's even harder harder when you have these two women that are trying to get you back in yeah. an institution. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's like very hard and you're lucky if you make it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of what's so interesting about this movie and part of what makes it the best horror movie ever made to me is that in so many movies, they're interested in putting you in the shoes of the protagonist. Mm. And in this, it really kind of puts you in the shoes of the townspeople. Yeah. Because the whole time everyone knows who this guy is the same way that we having seen the first one are like, it's going to happen eventually. He's going to snap eventually because we have the inclination that this is just a movie character. And we know that this is how sequels work. We're waiting for him to snap. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the notes and in a second, we're going to talk about an eye spying on Mary while she's in the, in the bathroom and everything. Mm -hmm. And we assume that that's him. Mm -hmm oh, Norman must still be bad after all. And it's this kind of carceral punishment as opposed to rehabilitation attitude that contributes to a higher recidivism rate in real life. That this attitude of people being like, once you're a criminal, that's all you are. That is the, you get the A stamped on you. And for everyone to be like, oh, I knew that this was going to happen. And then it doesn't really happen until he's literally like the last couple seconds I think that you're totally right in that this is really a movie about sort of our attitudes towards rehabilitation yes. and the way that we treat people coming out of those situations. Mm-hmm. And also when you think of how many slashers and slashers that I love too, but so many of them have the like escaped mental patient trope and that sort of thing. So it is interesting that this decides to actually take a lot of that seriously as opposed to being like, oh yeah, like mm-hmm. the psycho that like escaped from a prison is of course of like the perfect person to be the murderer and like kill all of these people in this. So it's it's 
I just really appreciate yeah. how seriously it's actually taking it compared to like so many other films in the genre. Sure. I mean, even Halloween, you know, his whole yeah. thing is that Mike Myers just breaks out of the sanatorium, they call yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. But Mary goes to meet Norm at the house that evening and thank him. And this is where that awkward little joke comes in and where Mary's like, oh, that Toomey is such an asshole. I could have just killed him, but you were so cool. <laughs> and that's when Norman is like, oh, I don't kill people anymore, remember? <laughs> and it's so funny because... That kind of awkwardness is like, oh man, it's it's heartbreaking for Norman. Like that would not put someone at ease. No, no. Like, <laughs> but it's also like so much a part of his character. Like you know, it's like yeah. a, a, you recall those moments in the first movie where he's also making like awkward small talk and probably revealing <laughs> too much in doing so. You know? Yeah, absolutely. sure. The taxidermied birds and everything, right? Mary goes to take a shower and we see an eye behind a hole in the wall spying on her and it's framed very much like the original movie although there's also a little bit of like Black Christmas in there with like the Billy eye flipping around. When Mary emerges from the shower she is a little suspicious. She thinks she sees something back there but she finds Norman downstairs playing the piano. That's actually Tony Perkins. He was a very talented piano player. Mm-hmm. But he's interrupted from his thoughts by Toomey arriving at the motel to pick up his stuff, pack up his stuff, and pick up his stuff, and get the hell out of town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Norman gets a call while Toomey is down there from someone claiming to be his mother. And he assumes that this is Toomey fucking with him. Right. And then... A mere moments later, we see Toomey get sliced up by someone in a dark dress, covered in shadows. Again, utilizing this imagery of the first Mm -hmm. one to play on our thoughts and say, well, that's Norman, of course, because that's what Norman does. Yeah. Can we talk about some details here quick? Because this is the stuff that I never actually think about too much when I'm watching this movie. But now that we're talking about it, I'm like, okay, so who is the eyeball in that scene? Is it? Lila, or is it the other woman? Uh, Mrs. Spool, yeah, or Mrs. whatever. Spool, yeah. yeah, I think it's Spool. I, I think so. Because she's the one who kills Toomey. And so I okay, think she was right. checking in on what was up there, and then she runs down and she takes him out. Right. Okay. So, and yep. so she's also who's in the, the Norma Bates kind of outfit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I think that at that point, it is just her outfit because since right. they are, spoiler alert, sisters yeah uh, they look very similar i mean mm-hmm. when you see her going up to the house at the end i you know it looks just like the back of the hair when she's in yeah, silhouette yeah, yeah. Right. so yeah but toomey is dead now obviously and norman seems to be very happy all of a sudden mm-hmm. <laughs> he quits he quits the job at the diner and he gets to work repairing the motel and the the good doctor arrives and he, he becomes aware of this But while Norman is working, he hears some noises and he sees someone in his mother's room, despite having just watched Mary leave for work. So he goes to check it out, uh, drawn in as the world takes on yet another Dutch angle. (laughs) Mary had just peeked in the hole uh, that she found in the wall before she left. And she had seen the room completely covered up. Everything was, uh, you know, covered up from, from the way that it was before because Norman was so uninterested in going in there. But when Norman enters now, everything is back to how it was, except for another note from his mother in her brass hand sculpture, this time threatening Mary's life. Mm. So effective to find this escalating in this way, to find these little, these little things where you're like, how is this even happening? It does feel 
like the ghost of his mother is 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 there and and yes. and fucking with him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, and so does that mean the 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 person who calls as his mother is Lila? Like, is all of this stuff kind of coalescing at once? Well, because he's also getting calls. Yeah, from Spool. I think that. But but if Spool is there as the eye behind oh, the wall yeah, yeah. and killing. Uh, y- y- you know, uh, Toom. What's his name? Toomey. Toomey. Yeah. Does that mean it's now Lila who's making? The, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like Lila's yeah. making these phone calls, and so he's be he's getting the phone calls, and oh, mother's yeah. back. And in addition to that, Spool is like running around, also murdering. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's like all of these things are kind of yeah. like for Norman, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of these things are happening in a way where it would have to be his dead mother, right? Yeah. right. Because there's no other way for Norman to explain how all of these things are happening at once, you yeah. know? Absolutely. Exactly. And and the way that they are each doing their part to, to do this is it's awful because I, I think that it's Lila is the one who undid all of the all the stuff and did this note here threatening yeah. right. Mary. And so, you know, they're like tagging in and out to get things done to screw with Norman's head. I actually can't remember now that we're talking about it. Are they working together or is this all happenstance? This was I wanted to talk about this when we got to the end of the movie, but is Lila working with Mrs. Spool? I don't think no. so. I think it's those it's like just two those right? are like unrelated. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. That's yeah. the that's the most my Okay, great. Let's keep talking about this cuz that's like the most mind-blowing interesting <laughs> yeah. thing about it. Yeah. Yeah, well so the door slams shut and locks Norman in the attic after he's been inspecting. And meanwhile, this is where a teenage couple break into the cellar to smoke and have sex, as Toomey mentioned has been happening when we first met him. <laughs> this is where it's like, hey, by the way, we are making an 80s slasher. <laughs> yeah. We gotta get some teenagers fucking in here, okay? Yep. Hell yeah. Well, this is, you know, when we talked a little bit off air, this is really interesting to me. This is where it really comes into play of how this movie kind of blends Hitchcock into something else, kind of the way that Brian De Palma does with movies like Body Double, Mm. uh, which, by the way, Brian De Palma reportedly offered this movie and declined. Interesting. But a bunch of kids getting, quote, punished for their transgressions feels Mm -hmm. much more like a traditional slasher from the genre that Psycho helped birth as opposed to the Hays Code-restricted work of Hitch himself. Uh, although the Hays Code was losing power by the time Psycho in the 60s rolled around, thanks to enforcement capability with TV and foreign films weakening their authority. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is really interesting that this is, you're right, this feels like an 80s slasher. This feels like they, they got the, the Hitchcock stew up to a boil, and they chopped up a carrot of 80s slasher, and they said, <laughs> here we go, dump this in. Give it a little time to simmer, and you got a beautiful stew going. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, this is one of the more, I think, successful examples of when making a kind of like late in the game sequel, updating it for the times successfully. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. like this yes. this brings Psycho into the 80s slasher genre mm-hmm. without feeling like mm-hmm. it has to sacrifice what's interesting or special about Psycho, yeah. which is really cool. Absolutely. The kids hear some noise and start to leave, but someone catches them. And the boy gets caught on the way out with the windows slamming on his fingers and a knife in the back. And it is a pretty good kill, I think, oh, yeah. for him to like have his fingers like squeaking on the window and everything. Yep. It's very intense without seeing too much. Yeah, I mean, well, this movie gets like very explicitly gory 80s as well as it goes yeah. on, it which does. is really fun. It, yeah, we see the whole path yeah, yeah. as this movie kind of goes through the years. Yep. But Mary comes back and she finds Norman up there in the attic. As we found later, she is actually the one who locked him in yeah. there. 
but we don't know that at the time. No. <laughs> and I like that her calling out for Norman starts as his mother's voice before shift. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. A nice little touch. Yep. Yeah. But she lets him out, and when he asks about the mother's room furniture, they find it all covered up again, which, ooh, very <laughs> spooky. <laughs> the girl who escaped, however, brings the police by, but the cellar is clean, and Mary claims to have been the one who cleaned it up, and that additionally... Norman and her had been walking in the fields that day when the murders took place, so it couldn't have been him. <laughs> walking in the um, fields. Yep. Exactly. As you do. Like you do. Yeah. <laughs> and Norman is upset by this lie because he's scared that it's happening again. And, and this mm. is another one of those points where it feels like if things had gone a different way, if she hadn't been there sabotaging him, this could have been a moment where he where he looked for help. Yes. Yeah. And and where maybe the doctor comes by and and he talks to him about this before it gets completely out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has these negative influences in his life yep. that are leading him down the primrose path here, and so for her to create, you know, it seems like she's defending him, but really she's just creating the environment where she can keep torturing him yeah and it really is the kind of thing where you have to come back and rewatch this movie because yeah, yeah. Yep. ever so much of it only clicks into place at the end that it, it's the kind of movie that you don't just want to rewatch you it makes you want to rewatch it like right away mm-hmm. it, it, it is a nice little puzzle that like fits so nicely together in the final moments and and rewards yeah. rewatches like tori was talking about where it's enough of a puzzle that you kind of forget some of the details and that makes it exciting yeah. each time yeah, and then you just pay that yes. much more attention to like all the little things that each of these characters are doing. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Absolutely. And part of Norman's being upset is that he thinks that he might have done it because that's what everyone tells him he does. Uh, <laughs> yes. I know. They say Norman kills people, so it must have been Norman who killed him. Yeah. Yep. And that's just heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. This movie gets like more and more tragic as it goes, basically, yeah. because yeah. you just... You start realizing as you start putting the details together, like, oh, this isn't, this has nothing to do with him, really, you know? Yeah. (laughs) When the cops go back to town, there's Lila waiting to pounce on them, asking why they haven't arrested Norman. After all, she says, it's all over town what he did. Right. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing where the rumor spreads like wildfire. Mm -hmm. Oh, did you hear what Norman did? Oh, he killed that little boy. Isn't that crazy? Like, and... She then heads to the house where we find out that not only is Mary the daughter of Lila, but that she has, in fact, been part of this team attempting to drive Norman mad again and get him recommitted with the notes and the calls and the furniture. But her increasing sympathy for Norman has her questioning this, especially since she had locked him in the attic. So she knows that it's not him who killed the kid. While, While Norman is in the bathroom. All the plumbing starts overflowing with blood, which is terrifying. Oh, to me. yes. I don't know. Like, <laughs> and every time that happens, I'm like, wait, what? What is that? Because then you're like, oh, is he just imagining this? And then she walks in and is like, oh, I'll clean it up. I'll take care of it. And I'm like, no, what the fuck is going on? Uh-huh. Yeah. For there to be an actual thing causing it is like such a relief. Yes. Too, in the moment when she like pulls out the rag and you're like, oh, it was like it's a scary reason that indicates that someone is dead and trying to cover it up but at least it's not just in his head (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, because that's like also a weird kind of like classic horror image, right? The mm-hmm. bathtub that mm-hmm. fills up with blood. Yeah. Uh, so you do immediately start. It just like makes your brain go like, oh no, something's happening to him. You know? know, like he's having a, a scary <laughs> fantasy of some kind. You know. Yeah, and and this is the kind of thing that only serves to reinforce this thought in his mind that he is in fact the one who did it. He right. finds this rag. Oh, I black out when I do this. I must have put it here. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Mary tries to convince him that it wasn't him, but he, he insists that it was. And she sends him downstairs to make them drinks. But again, she sees someone watching her through the hole. She grabs a gun that she had come prepared with, presumably in case Norman was as crazy as her mother insists that he is. Right. But also, I guess this is where, you know, she was like, oh, I guess I'll put myself in danger because I have this gun in my purse. Right. But she takes that out and she checks out the room. And this is when she she looks through the hole in the bathroom. And this scene looks so good. To set it up the same way that it is in the first one, but to put the shoe on the other foot. Yeah. Wow. It just looks great. Yep. I love the way it looks. I also love Norman's reaction to the gun because she's like, oh, crap, I really need to explain this. And he's just like, oh, okay, let's like, yeah, let's search the house. He like doesn't actually care that much. (laughs) It's just such good like acting for him. Yeah. I think that he doesn't want to talk about it because he... No. Yeah, it, it's, it's too like hard. For him. Yeah. Yeah, he 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 there's like a look of sadness that kind of crosses his face real quick. Yep. And then he he wipes it away and I think that you're right in that he's just like, "Oh yeah, let's go do something else" because I think that he gotten so good at repressing things yeah. that this is just it's another betrayal that he feels and he's like well this is just what happens to me yeah Yeah. because it's not unfounded but it's it's Mm -hmm. also sad like he just wants people to be able to be comfortable around him right yeah and 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 mary saw someone else looking at her through the hole by the way right which is also scary yes yeah (laughs) right because at this point she i think is fairly convinced like i guess doesn't know exactly like whether her mother is right or wrong about norman but now is very much aware that yeah. like okay well Norman's not doing some of the things that are happening right now you know like <laughs> right. yeah well and it works too because like as the audience like we do want to like f- you know we don't want it to be Norman right. we yes. like Norman yeah. we want him to be okay and so even though like she knows what he's done as well and is feeling those emotions it's like so nice to see that happening yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and and yet you know I remember the first time I watched this I'm sitting there like. Could he have gotten downstairs in the, right. in the amount yeah. of time? Like, <laughs> right. like, you know, yeah. there's still a piece of you that is convinced it's him. Yeah. Uh, even though the the movie is explicitly saying, don't do that. Don't be like the, the townspeople here. You know, right. you, you, there's a piece of you that just automatically falls for it because it's so easy to believe negative things about people. Yes. Yeah. So, but while he checks around downstairs, Norman, he's looking around for what's happening. Mary calls the hotel that Lila was staying at and discovers that she never came back. Right. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> she tries to comfort Norman, but he is quickly degrading. Mm. Terrified of his mother being in the house, he's refusing to leave his room. Mary stays with him, but she's a little freaked out, understandably so, to find him standing over her while she sleeps yeah. uh, with a knife. Yep. 
she stays cool though and she comforts Norman much like a mother would which is very uh, interesting in terms of that dynamic between them oh yeah this scene is pretty interesting actually just like all of those weird little dynamics that play out I mean him standing over with a knife is such a funny crazy image for her to like (laughs) react (laughs) for her to have any kind of reaction other than just like jumping straight out the window is like really wild (laughs) yeah uh, you know, I guess uh, she she knew what she was getting into. I know. It's like, that's the thing. It's like, she really must have, I don't know. It's like, how much did her mother like sit her down and like prepare her for like, this is who Norman Bates is. This is like, you know what I mean? It's like, you really have to think about like what she must have had to consider and confront to be a part of this scheme. Yeah. Dr. Raymond comes by the next day to tell him that he figured out Mary's identity. And he tells Norman that they're the ones who were harassing him. Although Norman isn't completely convinced. Again, because Mrs. Spools has been making calls. Right. <laughs> she yep. has been killing people. And so all the times when he's like, oh, that was my mother on the phone, my real mother. Like, oh, that's Mrs. Spools calling him right. and being yep. like, yes. Norman, it's me, your mother. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also, I mean, I think it once we get a little deeper in the movie, it gets to the point where it's like, I'm not even sure when this is ha- like. I think sometimes he is starting to just hear a voice again. Like he's picking right, up the right. phone yeah. and there really is nothing there. He really is just starting to hear. I do think it starts with both of these women making mm-hmm. actual calls, but it eventually builds to, he really is starting yeah. to re-experience these things again. And yep. he's just hearing the voice. Yeah. It, it keeps you questioning yeah. the, the validity of every single thing. Yeah. Is this a Spool's call? Right. Is this a Le- is yep. this a Lila call? Is this just Norman? Yep. It's super effective. In town, Mary is confronting her mother because she wants to stop this torture. Right. But Lila says that she can hear the approaching madness in his voice. <laughs> and all Mary has to do is dress up in his mother's clothes and try and get him to murder her. It's so <laughs> simple. The cops will be there so quick. So no danger, really, because the cops have never hurt the wrong person and don't in this very movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very funny. It is wild to think about the way she's also, like, gaslighting her own daughter throughout this whole thing. I know. It's, like, yeah. so, it's so many cycles of abuse going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mary refuses and says that she won't live for dead people anymore. And Lila grabs her, like, really physically painful-looking grab. And Mary even says that she's hurting her. And this is in front of people. And I think that, again, in this sort of interesting mirror image, you can see Lila slipping, too. Right, right. That this has fully consumed her. And she's clearly become obsessed to the point of being willing to sacrifice her only remaining family member, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that losing family members is what started this whole crusade in the first place. Right. Dr. Raymond has Norman's mother exhumed to prove to him that she isn't coming back to life. This is, I gotta be one of the things where I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, I don't know if I'm about, I don't know if I need to applaud Robert Loja as like, wow, (laughs) good doctor. Cause like, as far as having to prove this to Norman, what an incredible length that he goes <laughs> yeah. to, you know? To just organize and like exhuming a body, yeah. which I assume is not an easy task. Literally just so they can open the box and be like, see, okay, put it back in the hole, you yeah. know? Like, uh, but then I also want to be like, bad doctor? Because like, I'll, I don't know, that just seems like a strange thing to do. Look at this dead Yeah, dog. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is interesting. I guess that uh, they they the reason that they can't afford any social workers is they're too busy paying Robert Loja to be a super doctor. Who <laughs> <laughs> exactly. runs around exhuming bodies all day. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like such an incredible length that he goes to. I don't know. It's very funny to me. It sure does. Hey, this is Loja's only patient. <laughs> right. It's like, right. like, I got nothing going on, I guess. Yeah. Imagine, like, the stuff he's asking, like, for, like, he, like, needs to get reimbursed for at work. He's like, so I assume this body, like, yeah. here, please give me money back for yeah. this. <laughs> I like to imagine he is, like, Loomis from Halloween, where everyone just knows that he's, like, off his rocker a little bit, and they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, Robert Loja's out there exhuming more bodies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But this is also where Norman starts to reveal some of this real mother stuff that he's right. been been picking up. And he says, oh, yeah, that's my mother. She's dead. She's not coming back. Mm-hmm. But get a load of my real mother, gang. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is it's a whole it's a whole new issue. And, and <laughs> Dr. Raymond is just like, I uh, can't handle it. <laughs> Yep. I, it is, I know again a bad doctor right like yeah. i feel like norman has now exhibited uh many signs that yeah. there may be a problem uh, at home again well and spool too you're just like bitch like this guy has a lot of issues and now he's talking about his new mom and like you have no idea the fact that he's running around <laughs> saying this to people and they're like okay norman what they're like yeah whatever you're new your real mom <laughs> sure yeah. Yeah, he Norm Norman confronts Mary at back at the house when the phone rings again, and he claims to still hear his mother on the line. But as you say, when Mary grabs the phone, there's nobody on the line, and so she goes upstairs to try and pretend to be the mom and like convince right. him to hang up. Which uh, that's kind of a funny scene to me for her to like oh, run upstairs yeah. and be like, "Norman, it's your mother. Hang up." Yeah. <laughs> But I also, I really like that now we're in this, this is where we get to kind of the movies, like, it's, it's, we're moving into its climax now, mm-hmm. and the movie's starting to pull all of its threads together, yeah. and the idea that, you know, what her mom wants her to do is dress up as Norma Bates in order to get Norman to try and kill her, she <laughs> refuses to do it, but then has to walk upstairs and perform as Norma Bates in order to get Norman to stop thinking that Norma Bates is on the phone, yeah. fo- you know what I mean, like... <laughs> Everybody, you're, you're like all these layers are starting to just like pile yeah. on top of each other in like really weird, bizarre ways. Yeah, and you know, as he's degrading there, he starts telling her about this this real mother thing, someone that he doesn't know. And while they talk, uh, the police arrive and ask them to come to the swamp with them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. This, this is the famous yep. swamp that uh, they they drag at the very end of the original Psycho, and that's what they're doing here. And they found the corpse of Toomey and the young boy, and they ask Norman about it, who says that he has no idea. And so the the cops send him away, and the sheriff talks a little more with Mary, asking her about what she's been doing with Lila, and suggesting that they leave the town. And I actually really like this scene as well. Yeah. It's interesting that it's one of the few scenes without Norman being uh, involved, but those few scenes are, I think, very impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for the sheriff to be like what you guys are doing is just like the most fucked up. (laughs) Yep. You should leave. Maybe it's not technically illegal, which feels like it probably is. But (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know that guy's name, but I really like that actor that plays the sheriff. I think he's like, you know, it's such a small, but kind of, uh, as you say, like important role in this movie. And having the cop be like sympathetic is so interesting. Right. Like the sympathetic party that's like, please like leave Norman alone. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. (laughs) Back at the hotel, 
Lila runs up to the house and she's like, all right, well, if Mary's not going to do this, I'm going to friggin' enact this plan. <laughs> right. And she's being watched by Dr. Raymond. But as she's getting into the mother costume, she's assembling it. Someone shoves a knife into her mouth and out her throat. It yeah. is yeah. Quick, amazing. It's brutal. It's shocking. This is where it really starts to like, oh, we are in 80s slasher territory. Yes. Like, yeah. This if, is what, it looks and, great. And, and oh, my God, it's such a great special effect. And it's uh, really well shot, too. Like they they let you watch it happen, but cut away at just the right time before you get like too grossed out by it. It's yep. like a really perfectly done like <laughs> moment of gore. Um, and, and it's also like where the movie just fucking kicks into high gear. I mean, yeah. it's just like you don't really you're kind of waiting yeah. for this movie to like really like pull the trigger on like what exactly are we doing? Like, where is this going? What are we building to? Mm-hmm. And then it just fucking like starts knocking all the pins down at once, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it really does. And, you know, this this is something that also kind of happens in the original Psycho where as the, the, the dominoes start falling and things start spiraling out of control, people start showing up to the house and, oh, here's Sam Loomis and, oh, here's Lila Loomis and, oh, here's Arbogast looking for right. on behalf of the bank guy. Right. The same sort of spiraling happens in this and it's, it's so incredible to watch. Oh, now Dr. Raymond is running up and, right. and he's trying to, he doesn't see Lila, but he does find Norman and now he's like, oh, well, where did Lila go? Is Norman actually doing this stuff? All of these little, uh, like mini conspiracies almost yep. Yep. Uh, are just are just great and, and everybody's running up and down those goddamn <laughs> stairs again <laughs> it's good exercise yeah. yes but he tells raymond now about his real mother and dr raymond is like okay super cop time again i've i've finished right. exhuming your mother now i'm gonna go prove to you that it is in fact mary and lila who have been calling you this whole time <laughs> Not positive how he intends to prove that, but he's going right. to. <laughs> yeah. And interesting that, like, all, you know, he walks into this house and basically figures that out, like, immediately, right? Yeah. It's like, we've been watching this whole movie trying to figure this thing out. Robert Loggia, like, comes in the door and he's like, I know what's going on here. <laughs> and so he leaves, but Mary runs up. As you say, everyone's running up these damn stairs because Mary mm-hmm. shows up now to tell Norman that the cops are coming to arrest him and that they need to flee. But Norman is preternaturally cool. And this is another really awesome scene where she's like, yeah. we need to go. And he's like, why would we go? Where would we go? Everyone will just find us. Like, yeah. oh, man, so creepy, really effective. It feels like the first time where we've really seen Norman just completely divorced from reality. Yeah. yeah. This is where he's kind of become fully convinced. And it's where yeah. you start getting, I think, as an audience member, pretty fucking sad you know it's like the movie starts to become like very tragic as you realize like whether he has done any of this or not i can tell what's happening right now is he is losing himself again Well, and he's so uninterested in like trying to save himself or get away with it or anything he's like yeah i'm just gonna stay in this house he's just resigned yeah 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 and at some point he must have actually been talking to spools because he tells Mary that it's his real mother who's been doing the killing and that she's been doing it to protect him which is actually the motivation Mm -hmm. and he just tells her that he's basically accepted it like you said and the phone rings again and this time it's Dr. Raymond but since Norman has fully descended into madness at this point he treats him like he's talking to his mother 
right. which is mm-hmm. another very effective moment for me. Yeah. But when Mary grabs the phone, Dr. Raymond hangs up. And then Norman takes back the phone and keeps talking to quote-unquote mother, which is really scary, as he starts being like, oh, yeah, Mary's right here with me. Oh, no, I like her a lot, Mom. Oh, why, Mother? Why do I have to kill her? And Mary is like, oh, oh, fuck. (laughs) I got to get out of here. It's like all Um, the things. It's so interesting because it's all the things that you know, you sort of assume the movie's going to be about in the first 10 minutes that then the movie strays from for like an hour yeah. and then it comes back <laughs> to them and actually gets to them, but in a context that is totally different than you thought it would be, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, absolutely. And so Mary runs downstairs to dress up as his mother and try and convince Norman to stop, but he keeps talking on the phone. And the moment where she starts to cry while she's dressed up as Mrs. Bates... And she, like, calls out to Norman with her voice quavering. That is just incredible acting. It's so full of guilt yeah. and fear. And it's just so great. She's tremendous in this movie, I think. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And someone grabs her from behind. And she thinks that it's Norman trying to carry out his mother's wishes. So she brings the knife she was carrying down on them. Uh, but it was actually Dr. Raymond thinking he had caught Mary in the act of torturing Norman. Yeah. R.I.P. Super Ugh. Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Big rip to a real one. And then he just falls in <laughs> the craziest way ever. Yeah. Because oh, well, they got to repeat the stairway fall. Yeah. It's why everybody's running yeah. up and down these goddamn stairs through the whole That's movie. Because they're just waiting for you. You know, yeah. they want you to be like, oh, who's going down? That's right. That's right. And it's absolutely Dr. Raymond because. Oh, yeah. He smacks a banister on the way down with the knife, fully impaling him. Yes. And he just lies there on the floor. Norman comes out and he finds the doctor there and he tells uh, Mother Mary, uh, how many times have I covered up for you? I'll do it again. As she pleads with him to recognize her as Mary. Really just powerful stuff. And as he approaches her, she like semi-accidentally uh, stabs him in the gut a little bit. It feels like she's just kind of like moving in surprise, but she gets him and uh, she continues to poke at him to try and keep him away. Uh, there was some kind of like weird religious symbology happening there where he gets like stabbed in the ribs and then through his hands like Jesus. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. very strange. Yeah. I, it's funny you say that because I think that every time it happens and then because it doesn't actually mean anything or matter to the rest of the movie, I forget about it and don't think about it again. But every time it happens, I'm like, that's weird. That's what happened to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I, I sat there and I chewed on it. I said, maybe because he views himself as sacrificing himself for his mother. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. sure. He's a, he's a sacrificial lamb yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know. Take your own meaning from that, folks. Yeah. <laughs> But as Norman chases her down to the fruit cellar, he accidentally bumps into the coal pile, revealing the corpse of Lila buried underneath. And first of all, this looks great, too. Reminds me, yes. like, the way that she looks kind of reminds me of Pamela Voorhees' head. <laughs> but oh, that's it's one of the creepier moments. Whenever I see yeah. her face, I'm like, oh, this is, like, legitimately scary looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's all shriveled up. Like, it doesn't look like she's been down there for an hour or whatever. No. <laughs> I also like imagining whoever it was that shoveled all that coal into a different part of the basement, put the body there, then shoveled all that coal back on top of the body. 
<laughs> Miss Pools is buff. Yeah. You can't tell yeah. under that dress. <laughs> but yeah, so it's revealed. Mary assumes that he actually did it and tries to kill him for real now, not just being defensive like she had been. Mm-hmm. Right. But when she raises the knife to plunge it into Norman's back, the cops arrive and quickly blow her away. Yeah. Interesting that she ends up being the, you know, quote unquote, the knife wielding psycho in the, you know, in those final moments there. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And the police never land on a conclusive theory, but between the hotel guy reporting the argument between Lila and Mary, along with her dressing up as the mom and clearly trying to kill Norman, um, they assume that she's the one who snapped and killed everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interestingly, interestingly, though, in the shooting script, she does uh, survive the gunshot and is is said she'll pull through okay, but has gone mad at this point. Interesting. As if they were going to like set up some sort of like future psycho versus psycho. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. No matter who wins, we lose. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Can you imagine if that movie was called Psycho versus Psycho 2? Yes. It would be incredible. Like they d- they would, just like I'd... had to include the sequel title in the other versus <laughs> name to I let you know it. which one it was. It w- but it wasn't Psycho. It was Psycho 2. It's Psycho 3, Psycho versus Psycho, psycho 2. 2. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but Norman returns home, and a woman who looks like his mother starts up the path to the house. Great shot. Yeah. Kind of startling, because after this is when we assume, oh, this was Norman, and he got away with it. Like that was what right. I was thinking by the time yeah. that this had, had, had gotten to the point uh, in the first time I watched it. But it turns out that this was, in fact, Emma, the older waiter at the diner, who said the thing about forgiving and forgetting. Yeah. Which, of course, that now becomes a very uh, oh, you know what? Maybe maybe that's where the Christianity thing comes from because she's like oh, oh it's very from Christian. her, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her little, her, like, so it's, like, from her perspective that he's, like, a sacrificial lamb or whatever, that he's, yeah. like, her little savior or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, that just occurred to me. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, she reveals that she is, in fact, Norman's real mother, that she had Norman as an unprepared single mother, and that she had been institutionalized herself, mm-hmm. and that uh, Mrs. Bates, who is her sister took in the infant when she uh, went away for not being all together or whatever she says. She also, this is where she confirms that she was the real murderer, that she had been doing this the whole time. Yep. And she takes a big gulp of tea. And I love this. I did not notice it the first time. I noticed it the second time. But the fact that he poisoned the tea like he did with his actual mother or with Norma. Wow. What a, what a fun little touch. And, you know, it's the poison tea that Robert Loja comes in and he's like, can I get you some tea? And he's like, no, coffee, thanks. (laughs) So (laughs) I just I love that little moment. Oh, yeah. And I I think it's interesting that. So, well, for one thing, I do want to ask, do we believe her? I mean, the only evidence we have that her story is true is that she tells it to us. Right? Like wow. what aspect of it that she killed everyone? That or? she's his mother. That she's the that mom. She's the sister. That any of it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, who who knows? Really? Right? I mean, that's the only the only information we have on this is just that she has told it to us. Yeah. And Norman. Right? Right. Yeah. Wow. Great yeah. point. I hadn't so even I, considered that. He, and it's interesting, too, because they kind of make it where it could kind of go either way because oh, there's no files showing any adoption, but uh, it's her sister, and uh, maybe she just kind of right. took him. And, like, it kind of leaves like, it a little nebulous. And kind of thing that happens back in the day. Yeah, like, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It's, I, you know, I, I kind of think that 
if I'm thinking about this movie and the way the movie presents all of this, yeah. I think I'm supposed to believe her. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I think I'm supposed to think she's telling the truth. Yeah, but that's an interesting, it, like, hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's, yeah. I mean, she is clearly a, a psycho herself. So, I, you know. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and, and he was a famous one, right? Like, yeah. Norman was a famous psycho. So, like, did she just read about this guy and, like, seek him out and yeah. whatever, whatever, you know? Or like, is it, like, does it run in the family? Like, yeah. is this also, like, a genetics well, kind that's, of thing? That's the other thing where, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the movie, it's so, like, would this have even happened if if he hadn't had every single thing that could go wrong? go wrong for him exactly right but you know that's what happens unfortunately is every single thing goes wrong for him and uh and so he smiles and her head dips and he grabs a shovel and cracks her over the head with it Uh, a little bit of overkill perhaps but i respect it (laughs) i mean i really what i like about this kind of final moment for one thing it's just like a great thrilling crazy image to you know end your psycho sequel on but it's, it's also this, like, it's about as low and as sad as you could possibly imagine them deciding to go with this. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah. not only have these people successfully brought him fully back into his illness. Yeah. They've literally handed him a new mother with which <laughs> to poison, kill, yeah. and put in the attic to, like, continue, like... They literally reset the clock. Well, on it's Norman also Bates. an interesting. Like, is this now his moment of just acceptance, and this right. is what he wants and what he is comfortable with? And right. so, like, now mm-hmm. he has got his new mother, and he is back in his house, and like he he gets to do the thing that was toxic but comfortable, right? Which yeah. is like maybe easier at this point sure. because he was trying to get better, and that clearly didn't work. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe like. It, I wouldn't say triumphant, but maybe there is some weird healing for him there's, in this moment. There's relief for yeah. uh, Norman in this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I think the, the pressure certainly is uh, has been yeah, right. uh, yeah. taken yeah. away. And and as you as you mentioned, you know, he carries the body back upstairs. He talks to it like he used to, and once again, mother has taken control of Norman because she talks back, and the yeah. vacancy light flickers on. And Norman that. emerges from the house, a spider in his web once more. Great stuff. <laughs> it's yes. really, I love yeah. that yeah. ending so much. And, and uh, great final image uh, by Cundy. Oh, it it's got so all the good. fog and stuff. Uh, yeah, it looks really good. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now we've reached the point of the episode, Tori and Garrett, where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And uh, Garrett, let's start with you, man. Norman Bates versus the Bad Moms Club. What more could you ask for? <laughs> I mean, that's a great premise for a movie. I re- I just think it is, it, you know, it's, it's kind of contextual, right? It's just Psycho truly is one of the great movies, one of the great horror movies. Mm-hmm. And 22 years later, a movie that is fully an 80s slasher movie with gore and teenagers smoking and getting punished for their... Yeah. You just can't imagine that that's going to be like... Not only you can't imagine that would be great, you can't imagine it would even be good. You just assume that that will be terrible, mm-hmm. and for it to kind of prey on that in its storytelling, mm-hmm. what you will think about it as a sequel to Psycho, I think is like such an ingenious thing for a movie yeah. to do. And the thing I always say about this movie, and I also say this about The Exorcist too, by the way, uh, my favorite thing to say about these two sequels is 
I agree that Psycho and The Exorcist are truly great movies in their genre. But if you're asking me which one I want to watch right now today, Psycho 2, Exorcist 2, every time. That's the movie wow. I want to watch. If you're asking me of those movies, what I want to watch right now today, it's always the, the sequel. Yeah. Because they're surprising and fun in ways that I just, I, I don't know, I couldn't imagine them being. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Tori, why is this the best horror movie ever made? I mean, obviously the 80s is the best decade of horror. So why not <laughs> take one of the great horror movies and bring it into the 80s so you get all of the things that are amazing oh, about yeah. Psycho, but you also get, I mean, amazing <laughs> people again, like Dean Cundy coming and doing like the cinematography for this film, which looks absolutely incredible. You get some good gore. You get some nudity. You get the sex and drugs of the 80s and like all those good <laughs> slasher tropes while also like I you know I think one thing about this that is so interesting is like Psycho is like a great movie but I think this one is much more interesting to talk about because there are so many layers and it is ultimately mm -hmm. I think more complicated than the original and so I think like especially this is like such like so much more interesting to talk about and dissect than the original too um, so I mean yeah like I I just want to talk about this movie and watch this movie yeah <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah uh, to me this is the best horror movie ever made because it is it is incredibly deliberate yeah mm -hmm. everything about this movie feels so purposeful mm -hmm. from the weaponization of the iconography from the original film to even its own understanding of our own bloodlust as an audience <laughs> and, and the way that people react to trouble coming to town the way that Norman mm -hmm. does. I, I just think that the movie itself is incredible in terms of like the structure of it and the way that it's put together. But then on top of that, for Anthony Perkins to put in a second installment of the best horror performance of all time and perhaps even bring it to a new level by by making him a little bit more complicated as you said Tori and adding a little depth and bringing him out of this psychosis temporarily and seeing maybe what could have been for him mm -hmm. yeah. this to me I don't I don't say tragic just to be like oh I think it's sad I feel like this is a tragedy like a, a yeah. Shakespearean tragedy yeah and we're complicit in it yeah mm-hmm and I think that that is so fascinating to me. And then for it to have such incredible rewatch value that you can keep coming back to it and see all these little details that, that finally make sense or, or be able to pick through it. I just think that that's not the kind of thing that comes very easily. And for it to escape the very long shadow of Psycho, stand on its own while still paying respect to the original, that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well well said. Hell yeah. And to your point, George, I actually think that, you know, Norman Bates is one of the great movie characters, but I kind of think this movie is ultimately what makes him truly one of the great movie characters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He he was already because of that initial movie, but the way that this movie complicates him and makes him a sympathetic character. Yeah. I think for yeah. me is what makes him such an endearing, enduring character in cinema. Yeah, Norman is, I, I love Norman. He's so cute. Yeah. I have a crush on Norman. Yeah. But thinking of just like 
Perkins and his life and how hard it may have been to come back to a character like this yeah. and really yeah. come back. Like he fully embodies Norman again yeah. mm-hmm. is so impressive. And like yeah. more so than just the fact that he did it in the first place. Right. Like he came back, he had clearly gone through all of this like stuff in his personal life and has so much like kind of in common with Norman and has to like reawaken all of that in this movie and then in a third and a fourth right but like yeah i the minute he comes on screen and he like does his awkward little half smile and stuff i'm like oh he is he is this person again and it's amazing yep i i love this movie folks if if you haven't checked it out you know sometimes i'm i you know i I like most of the movies that we talk about on this show but every now and then we talk about a movie that i really am like if you haven't seen this movie, you should really make it a point to go check this movie out. And uh, I think that today's movie is absolutely one of those. And if you have not seen it, or even if, especially if you didn't even know it existed, then you should really go check out Psycho 2 because it is absolutely worth your time. Tori, Garrett, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on and for picking this movie because it was an absolute joy to discuss. And please tell people where, uh, where they can find your writings and talkings and all that jazz. Uh, well, you can find our podcast, Killer Bees, at Killer BS Podcasts, everywhere on the internet. Tori runs our Twitter page very well. And, um, you know, we cover, like, uh, B-movie actors, basically. We just profile different actors. We recently did a series on Rucker Hauer. Casey Lemons is coming up. We have we have some uh, good stuff coming down the Pam pipe. Greer, yeah. Miko Kaji, so many good Ooh. ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hell yeah. And uh, we both write for moviejohn.com. That's uh, J-A-W-N, the Philadelphia John. Yes, and you can... Uh, Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, Tori Potenza on on things. But yeah, I have a series that I've been working through on David Cronenberg and like sex and gender themes in his movies. And uh, my new column on Movie John on Women Who Kill just started also. So every month I'll, I'll profile another woman who kills in, in film, which is fun. Yeah, definitely check that stuff out. Um, I love that you guys have embraced our beautiful city with movie john <laughs> oh thank you, yes. thank you. and uh, it's great i i use i use that phrase in my own lexicon very frequently to Yay. some of my online friends dismay <laughs> <laughs> but yeah as far as my plugs you can find me on twitter at little horror phl uh you can check out the patreon where we got all kinds of fun bonus episodes including just more movies that we talk about without necessarily being constrained by the best horror movie ever made. So we've talked about stuff like Extro 2, where I get to talk about how much I love B-movies. We've talked about Begotten, which that's a fucked up, crazy movie. <laughs> if you haven't seen Begotten. I'm not. Wow. Oh, you should check out Begotten. Okay. And we also talked about Solaris, which is genuinely one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, so you can check out all that fun stuff. And then there's all, that's not even the only kinds of episodes on there. So, Make your way over to the Patreon. That's also Little Horror PHL, and uh, check that stuff out. Uh, that's it for me. Thanks again, guys, and uh, go birds. <laughs> uh, thanks for having us, George. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Bye. <laughs>